Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Chasing Justice. I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe Pangaro, and we're here for another fun-filled adventure into a lot of the nonsense that's going on in the world, some serious things to talk about, some political things to talk about, and maybe uh, some human interest. We'll see. I might even uh, give you a little bit of some you know, police lingo and things like that and see what we can talk about. So the first thing that I want to address, you know, one of the things that we see with violence in our society, and we see crime on the rise everywhere, pretty obvious that crime is on the rise everywhere. Now, it stems from specific things. You have policies across this nation in most of our our Democrat-run cities where they have this notion in their head that the the best way to uh, help people who believe they are uh, improperly charged with crime, that they are scapegoats for criminal activity, etc., etc., is to just undo the system so that people don't get arrested. And if they don't get arrested, then uh, and they're not put in a position to be arrested, then their lives will be great, and they'll go out and be productive citizens. And the evil police who simply target people for their race or their socioeconomic uh, situation or whatever, those people will be free of the burden, and they can live like the rich people uh, who don't get bothered by the police. Well, if that's really what some people believe, and I have to believe it is. Uh, how many times have I said here on Chasing Justice, because we, we chase justice, that's what we're all about, have I said that I understand that there is a need for some kind of bail reform? I've said that, if I said it once on here, I've said it a hundred times. Bail is meant to make sure you come to court. Now, that's usually demonstrated by your, um, your pre- previous history. Have you ever been in trouble before? Have you ha- do you have a job? Are you connected to the community? Or do I get arrested in, uh, in Enid, Oklahoma, and I really live in New Jersey? Uh, what's the chances I'm coming back if I get charged with something? Well, I got to have some skin in the game. Right? So I put up money uh, to say that, hey, uh, if I come back to court and I do what I'm supposed to do, I'll get that money back. That would be a good thing. So that's my interest in staying in there. But what we've said before is that there's a lot of times that people on the lower socioeconomic end cannot make the bail. If you got hit with a bail for $500, I would be able to get out of jail. I would be able to post $500, $1,000, $2,000. I could post $2,000 and get out of jail. There's a lot of people that that kind of money, $2,000, is is just completely out of a range for them. It's not something they could actually handle. And therefore, they end up going to jail. Now, how would I delineate this? Well, just as a, uh, a reminder, what I've said is that any violent crime should have a high bail on it. Any violent crime. Because you've demonstrated that you uh, are willing to hurt people in your actions, whether it be in a robbery, a burglary, a theft, uh, a cold cock punching somebody in the back of the head for no reason because you think it's cool. Um, that kind of thing, you should go to jail for that while you're waiting for your trial. Uh, but, you know, people who do minor nonviolent things, they should be offered a reasonable bail, $50, $100. You know, look at their income and then do a percentage of that. All right, so if somebody makes $12,000 a year, asking them for 1000 is a month's worth of their pay. 
That's impossible. But if you would say $100, you got to post $100 bail. You At least you have some skin in the game. And then they would post 100 and hopefully they would come to court and be able to answer for their shoplifting or whatever it is that they did. They were nonviolently charged with. That being said, my friends, what we're seeing, though, is the wholesale refusal of these Democrat cities to recognize the truth about criminal behavior. And this isn't pointing to any particular group at all. This is criminal behavior. When people engage in criminal behavior, they do it because they're inclined to do that. You know, I'm writing my second book right now. Uh, It's called The Investigation, and it's going to be published by uh, Blue 360 Media. That's a big media publisher, nationwide publisher. I'm very happy uh, to be uh, on their team. But I'm publishing this, and and I'm writing a thing about um, signature crimes and patterns, human patterns. And it's, it's good to understand about human patterns when we look at criminal activity, people that are prone to commit crime. Now, people commit crime for lots of reasons. Sometimes they feel they need things. You know, they need money. They have no money, and they need money. Uh, Now, what do you say? Well, go to work. There's uh, 4 million jobs that are unfilled. You could go to work. Uh, But a lot of people, that's not their lifestyle. Their lifestyle is not go to work. Maybe they have a drug habit, a drug problem, and they're not able to go to work. Now, this this is where society has to make some decision. Do we consider that? Because you've decided to become a drug user, and now you can't go to work, you can't do anything, so therefore we have to understand when you commit crime? No. Maybe uh, committing the crime is what might save your life because you commit a crime, you get found guilty, you go to prison for three years. While there are drugs in prison, and I think we all know that, uh, there are drugs in prison, you have a chance of getting cleaned out because, you know, you can't just sit around and shoot dope all day long. Uh, It may be available to you, but you're not going to sit around and do it. And maybe there's a chance you can clean up your act uh, and save yourself. So people who are prone to crime do it for lots of reasons. Some people are just criminals. They just always take the easy way out. They always take advantage of anyone they can possibly take advantage of. And if they can steal your stuff, uh, then they'll steal it. So I told you uh, just recently, I was in California. Uh, In a previous episode, we were talking about this. I was in California and they have these signs everywhere that I had mentioned. And it's, I was showing them to to a friend of mine recently. I took pictures of it because it's kind of hard. We don't see them around here, although we have crime. It's not the same kind of thing in in the San Francisco area. It is just completely out of control. Everything that you see uh, on the news is is true. So they have these signs everywhere that say, this is a smash and grab hotspot, which means if you leave anything in your car, you leave a phone cord, charging cord, a bottle of water, a hat in your car, and they can see it, they will smash the window and take that because they can they can do something with it. They could sell the cord for a dollar. They can uh, sell the hat. They could wear the hat. They could drink your water because they don't have anything. But this is this is uh, one of the things we have to decide as a society. How much do we tolerate crime? So in my new book, one of the things that we're talking about is I'm trying to explain to the officers that will be investigating things about understanding patterns. All humans have patterns. We are creatures of habit. That's where. Uh, that's where that saying comes from. And like, you know, you know, anybody who's listened here, that I'm a fan of um, old sayings and things like that, because there's usually a lot of truth in, in them somewhere. So when you say to yourself, you know, we are creatures of habit, think about yourself. Do you have any routines? Do you have any, 
any things that you do the same way all the time. Like think about getting up in the morning. Do you get up in the morning? And what's your, what's your routine? Well, I know for me, I get up and I like to have uh, make the cup of coffee. I make a pot of coffee. I really like it when I make the pot the night before and I just have to hit the button in the morning. I really like that. But I don't always remember to make it the night before. So I get up. My first thing is I got to make that pot of coffee. Then if I want to be productive, I go right to the shower while the coffee is percolating. I take my shower and I get dressed and I'm all done and ready for the day and I'm ready to go nice and early. Then I drink my coffee. I go over any notes. I do emails, make phone calls. And then I move on with whatever it is I have to do. That's my routine. I do it every single day. That's the way I do. And why do I do it that way? Because it has worked out for me over the course of time. I realized that if I got up and I didn't have my coffee in the morning, I would be annoyed because I like coffee. It help, It relaxes me. It gets me going. It's a part of my routine. So if I got up and I had my coffee, but I didn't shower right away, I waited till 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, then I find, oh, something came in. I have to leave and go somewhere, but I'm not showered. Now I have to stop and go. See, see what I'm saying? So we all have something. We all have these routines because uh, we are creatures of habit. But the key to all of it is that when we find something that works for us, when we find a pattern that works for us, we usually stick with it. And our patterns can come to us by uh, the things that we want, the things that we like, what we're comfortable with, not comfortable with, whatever. Well, criminals are the same way. So normally, and I'm speaking here in general, right? Not every single one of anything, but in general, people that commit burglaries, that's what they do. They commit burglaries. They go and do burglaries because they've learned to look at the signs and say, hey, there's no car in the driveway. It's nine o'clock in the morning. The chances are the people in that house are at work. They're not home. So what we see with lots of these burglars is that they will go up to the front door and knock on the door. And if anybody answers the door, they say, oh, hey, I'm looking for Charlie Schmidlap. Does he live here? Uh, the person will say, no, no, this isn't the Schmidlap house. This is the, this is the Jones home. Oh, I'm sorry. And they'll look at the address and they'll say uh, 25. And I'll say, oh, I thought he was at 52. I'm sorry, I got the wrong house. Uh, no, oh, no problem. And people, 99% of people do not call the police when that happens. Now, if the person is all disheveled and they look like a drug addict or you know a street person, they might call the cops at that point. But 99% of the time, people do not call the police when that kind of thing happens. And that is a very common modus operandi for burglars. They knock at the front door. And if nobody answers, then they go around to the back or the side of the house, break a window, shoulder a door, pry bar something, climb through a window, whatever. And they go in the house and they steal stuff. Now, what will happen is they will figure out if they do this enough that they're going to do this a lot. If it's profitable, they come out of the house maybe with some money, uh, some electronics that they can sell and they didn't get caught. They will say, hey, that worked pretty good. I'll try. I'll do that again. And that becomes their pattern. They'll knock on a door and then they'll go. Um, you also have people you will see some of the famous cases we've all seen over time, you know, the serial killers. Uh, everybody likes to talk about the serial killers. They find a pattern of luring a victim or cornering a victim or capturing a victim and they find what works. What was the easiest way for me to get control of this person? And then what, you know, where did I take them? How did I, what did I do with them? Uh, and then how did I uh, kill them and dispose of the body or, or get away from the scene? And they'll figure out what pattern worked for them. So it, maybe it's calling a prostitute, maybe it's picking up a prostitute. 
Uh, maybe it is watching for somebody um, in an area where there's nobody around and you jump out and grab him. Ted Bundy was a guy that always pretended that he was injured and he was trying to put something in the back of his car and he was a handsome fella. You know, all these people will tell you he was a good looking guy. That And he dressed nice. That put people off. They didn't see him as, he's not a street person, he's a, he's a horrible criminal. He, he was a handsome, good looking young man and that, that um, sets people at ease a lot of times. So what he would do is pretend he's trying to put something in his car in the area around these colleges where all these college girls were, and somebody would see him. Oh, he's good looking and he's not so bad. He'd say, would you like help with that? Sure. And he would say, can you grab this side? I'll grab this side. And then he would take something and bop him over the head, throw him in the backseat of the car, and drive away with him. And then he would do the things that he did with him. Uh, now, he was a, uh, a psychosexual killer, so he would then take the victim somewhere uh, and then have his way with them sexually, and then kill them. Um, and that's his pattern. So that's my point, is that patterns happen over and over again. We see the same thing when we see um, these riots. We see how they begin. They start off um, peacefully. They're peaceful. They're protesting. And then that leads to a moment of opportunity. When the sun goes down, it gets dark. Not everybody's looking. And then somebody will throw a brick. Or somebody will throw something else. They'll do something to start a situation. So patterns are very, very important in, uh, in the things that we do as humans and in criminal activity as well. So that's something that's going to be in my book. I talk all about patterns and how understanding human patterns can help you investigate. I also talk about police patterns. You know, police officers uh, should not get into routines. This is something that in many police academies, they try and instill in the officers right away. When you go out on patrol, Right, and you and you, whether it's day shift, afternoon shift, midnight shift, whatever it is you're working, do not have a routine. Do not, okay. First thing I do is I go get my cup of coffee. Then I patrol the north side of the highway, then the south side of the highway, then I go through the residences, then I come back to the parks, and then you repeat that. Because if a criminal is watching, looking for opportunity, they are looking for the patterns of police behavior. Now, I, I told you once before, but it's worth mentioning here. We investigated a, a series of burglaries one time, a young group of guys in their early 20s, uh, and they actually sat outside the police station with radios and notebooks uh, on the midnight shift, and they had notes about who the cops were physically, you know, who's the red-haired cop, who's the blonde-haired cop, what car number did they get in, and then they had descriptions of how did they patrol, and they had their patterns down. And when the one officer would go up, he wouldn't be back in this area for two hours, they would go hit all those businesses. So people will use patterns against you and for you. So that's why we train cops to do random patrols. Don't do the same thing every night. Uh, don't do the same thing every day when you go out there. Do something different. So patterns are extremely important, and, I, and I, I'm talking about that um, because some things have come up in, a, in some of these cases. Uh, one of the things we'll talk about is uh, the Idaho, the murders of the, of the college kids out there. I think this guy's name is Kohlberger. I normally don't like to, to say their names, uh, but uh, I think that that is his name, Kohlberger. And he's been charged with the four murders. Uh, whether he's found guilty in court or not will, determine, will be determined by the court, whether how his trial goes. Does he have a good attorney, not a good attorney? Does he have a jury uh, that will, will be sympathetic to him, will believe him, uh, what evidence do they have, etc. But one of the things I had said when I first saw this was because of the, the manner of death, and we talked about this in another episode, the manner of death, the stabbing with the large, powerful knife, that is 
uh, that is a that can be a component of a psychosexual attack. The the knife is a phallic symbol and it's a f- symbol of power over the victim. So it's come out in in recent weeks. Some of the information is leaking out because the search warrants are being released uh, released to the public, so that we could see what was in there. What was their probable cause for getting the search warrants? And of course, they pinged his cell phone, which is a modern technique of investigation. Because we all have our phones, they're all on, they're listening to us when we don't think they are. Uh, they ping all the time constantly to keep in touch with their towers. Uh, and those towers, they record all those pings. They can tell where you are and, and what you're doing all the time. So they pinged his cell phone and they found that um, he had driven to the victim's home, the home where he killed all the people, and he was in that area uh, several times. And he drove up and down, probably looking at He was stalking them. He was stalking them. So what I'm talking about in, in my book is that trying to determine what happened here. Did this guy, this killer, did he go to the house uh, specifically to murder people? Or did he go there to uh, maybe talk to one of these girls? He, he wanted to go out with them. He had, he had It's already come out that he had uh, reached out on direct messages to the one particular girl. Uh, she didn't respond to his text messages. But he had reached out to her. So was he going there for what purpose? Now, of course, we can say, well, he brought a big old knife with him. Uh, That would be indicative of his thought pattern. Maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe he went there to uh, vent his anger and frustration uh, at these young ladies for not uh, responding to him or going out with him or whatever. Or maybe he happened to have that in the car and he went up, maybe he was looking in the windows, and he saw the girl and the boy go into the bedroom, and he saw the other girls uh, do whatever, and then he, then he got frustrated, and then chose that moment to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to attack these people. So it makes a difference in the timeline and when he made his decisions. You know, if he made the decision to kill them, that's premeditated murder, even if it's a minute before the action. If he decided, I'm going to go kill them, uh, that's a premeditated murder, as opposed to... Um, you know, say you're out somewhere and uh, somebody says something to your wife or your significant other and you turn around and you say something and now they turn and you're going to have a fist fight and you're going at it with a fist fight and a guy pulls a knife and you pull your concealed carry weapon and shoot him and kill him. Well, that's a homicide. Um, it's certainly not a murder. unless you know, That wasn't your intent to murder him. You were in self-defense and we are allowed in many places to defend yourself. So there's different layers of what people do, and the timeline can be extremely important to figure out what was on somebody's mind. It can help reveal motive. It can help reveal uh, what they did as far as planning or didn't do. So I talk about a lot of that in the book. Uh, One of the things I had listed, uh, I've broken things down over the years in the types uh, types of criminal actions. You know, why does somebody do what they do? Why do they commit a shoplifting uh, event or why do they uh, sell drugs? Why do they rob somebody? Why do they rape somebody? And why do they murder somebody? You know, what are, what are the, what's behind those things? Well, one of the things I talk about is uh, there are human emotions. We're driven by our emotions. Humans are driven by emotion for the most part. And there are good emotions. They're happy emotions. Uh, love, joy, fun, um, excitement, all those are, those are great emotions. They, they don't usually don't lead to trouble. It's our negative human emotions that often lead us to problems, 
to uh, doing bad things, you know, jealousy, anger, hatred, uh, frustration, all those kind of things can lead us to doing things that are bad to other people, right? Because if you love somebody, you'd be nice to them. If you hate somebody, you might kill them or hurt them. So when I look, and I, I started studying this a while ago because I started to notice that there's a group out there, the incel group, the incel community, the involuntarily celibate. Now, I talked about them not too long ago. I started discussing it. But I, I, I was very happy to see that while I saw early on the potential that this killer in Idaho might be an incel, whether he identifies as an incel or he just feels uh, those feelings, that he's involuntarily celibate, that that might be a part of this. And now I'm seeing the FBI profilers come out and they're talking about, there is some incel activity, we're thinking this, and I think that's great. Uh, I learned a lot from our FBI friends. I, I kind of understand how they, how they think, and I also have taken a lot of the training that they have taken as well. So anyway, when I look at those things, the incel community, um, you're hearing more and more about them, and I included them uh, in my book when it comes to the types of criminals. Um, and I'll go into that in a minute, but the types of criminals that are out there, I have uh, malignant criminals uh, and non-malignant criminals. So the malignant criminal, that's the one that's going to hurt you badly just because they don't care about you. Maybe they're a sociopath and they have, they have no emotional connection to other human beings. They don't care if you suffer. They want your wallet and they'll shoot you anyway. They'll want your wallet and they'll bash you over the head with, uh, with the gun, uh, bust your skull open, and they'll leave you laying there bleeding. They don't care. Uh, they'll sexually assault you because they, they want sex with you and they'll just grab you and assault you and they don't care what happens to you. That's a malignant type of a criminal. Uh, the other non-malignant criminals, they may also do bad things but they don't go overboard, okay? So when we say somebody gets into a fist fight and one guy pulls a stick and the other one gets a knife, and in the course of the fight, to defend myself, you know, I stick you with the knife to get you away from me or protect myself. Well, you may bleed out, you may hit an artery, you may die, or you may just have a, a puncture mark. But when I confront you to, uh, to steal your wallet, and I take your wallet, then I stab you and you go down, and then I stab you repeatedly, that is, um, that is, um, it's overkill. So when we see these murder scenes and we see overkill, that speaks to the mind of the, um, the mind of the killer. So in Idaho, it was overkill from what they've described. A rage murder scene, anger, that kind of thing. So that's a, a malignant crime. Now, some, some of the police experts they've had on uh, have, have postulated that this is not the first time he killed. He couldn't have, this could not have been the first time he killed. He must have murdered before. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Maybe they'll go back and they'll find he may have been involved in other crimes. That's absolute possibility. Um, but it doesn't mean it is. This could be his first time. This could be, this has been building up in him. Uh, and if he has incel tendencies... Uh, then he would be feeling this pressure, this pain for a long time. We know he was picked on in high school. People have reported that. He didn't get along with women. They didn't seem to care for him or not the ones he wanted. And this could be a buildup of that. And this was the final push, whatever happened here, and he, he acted out. But these are all important things for us to understand when we look at crime. And when we say that for criminals, uh, they're really just abused by the system and they're abused by hateful cops and this and that. And that's really not true. 
You know, uh, I know when people say, when people talk about this, there's a, uh, there's a tendency to say, well, most of the cops are good. And how many times are we going to say that? 99% of all police officers are good and decent men and women who are out there trying to do the right thing for their communities. There are a handful of people on our police agencies that should not be cops. They're just not suited for it. They're not suited for the work. They might, may have uh, strange uh, behavior patterns. They might have strange thought patterns, and they just should not be police. I agree with that 100%. Anybody who's a cop will tell you that. You've come across people at times that, you know, you say, eh, this, this, this person is, is kind of a little off the way they deal with people. Maybe they're a coward. There's a lot of cowards, uh, believe it or not, in police agencies as well. Uh, but the 99% of the men and women out there are awesome, tremendous, great people. And we should all respect them for the work that they do. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> that was tough. The work that they do every single day is to help all of us live a decent life. But when we start to believe that uh, the rhetoric that's out there, the anti-cop rhetoric, that most of the criminals and people of color are picked on by the police simply because they are people of color, uh, that is not true. Now, are there instances of that? Yes, of course there are. Just like there are in every part of society, there are people who are racist that are bad. But that is not what happens on a daily basis in law enforcement. I was there. I did, I did 30 years in law enforcement. I still train officers. That is not what happens. So what you have is you have a criminal element from every community that's out there. Every community has criminal element. And they have decided that crime works for them. They would rather steal and rob than to go to work or to, uh, they'd rather sell drugs because you know, they make more money, have a better lifestyle. You don't have to go to work. You just have all the good things, right? So people that are criminals, when you pull law enforcement back, when you pull back the police and say, hey, back off uh, on these people because, uh, you know, they're just uh, over-policed and there's too much problems with the police, people do not turn around and go, you know what? Now that the cops are leaving us alone, I think I'll get a job and do the right thing. Go to work every day and, and, and raise a family and be a good American citizen. That's, that's, not, that's not how it works. Uh, one of the reasons I'm telling you some of these things about my book is that a lot of it is about human nature and how people function, how people deal with each other, what makes them tick, right? Is to, is to understand that, is to understand people's behaviors. So when we understand that there's criminal behavior, when you back off and you take the pressure off being held to consequences, people don't say, oh, that's great. I'm going to be a good person now. What they say is, hey, now I can get away with even more. I can abuse more people. I can take advantage of more things. I can hurt more people because I like doing that. That's what the criminal element does. And our friends on the left... You know, they, they believe in, uh, in the best. They believe in all this racism. Uh, the police are all racist, and that's the only reason they go after people. They, they believe that in their heart. I think they really do. Uh, they're completely wrong. Uh, and that's where their policies come out and lead to uh, the nonsense that we see today with uh, absolutely no bail for people who do horrific things over and over and over again, who hurt people and whatnot. And that has to change because it's not sustainable. Uh, and eventually, hopefully, society's going to turn around and say, enough is enough. All right, well, listen, we have a lot going on here in, in this opening uh, section here today of Chasing Justice. We'll be back in a minute with more. 
Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at CofixRx.com. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, You're ready for anything. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. Fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. All right, everybody, we are back here on Chasing Justice for even more good times together. Now, uh, I want to tell you uh, about Healthy Cell. Now, I, I talk about it a lot here. They're on the network. Uh, they, they do not sponsor Chasing Justice. They happen to be on the network, and I was looking for something to help improve my health well, over a year ago now. Uh, and I saw this on here, and I said, hey, let me give it a try. And I found that it really worked for me. It really changed uh, my, I guess, my uh, body's reaction system to germs. Uh, I had a, a complete change in the things that normally, as an adult, and I'm a healthy person, but they would get me every year, sinus infections, uh, what do they call it, uh, bronchitis. I would get that every single year for, I don't know, the last 59 years of my life. Every year I got it at least once, maybe twice. This is the first year 
that I have not gotten bronchitis at all. I have had one sinus infection and it was very, very limited. And the only thing I'm doing different, the only thing I'm doing different now is I take the immune boost uh, from Healthy Cell. And I absolutely attribute it to that. I told you at one point I took it for a while. I stopped taking it. That's when I got the infection. Pretty interesting, right? Then I started taking it. I've been good ever since. So I want to tell you, if you're looking for something to help you, uh, look at the Healthy Cell Immune Boost. They also have one for sleeping. I know a lot of my friends on social media, I see them every night. They post, 2 a.m., I'm still up. 3 a.m., I can't go to sleep. I can't go to sleep. Oh, and I know that's a real problem for people. Uh, it was a problem for my cousin Stephen. And, you know, I, I bought some of this stuff and I tried it. I was going to give it to my father-in-law, Ted, uh, but he actually sleeps pretty well. But my cousin Stephen said, hey, I'm having trouble sleeping. And said, you know what? Why don't you try this stuff? And he tried it and thought it was great and it really worked for him. Matter of fact, he buys it all the time now. So I'm very happy that I, I turned him on to it. So that, that's it. I just wanted to tell you that if you're looking for something to help you, uh, take a look at the, uh, the Healthy Cell products. They're on the network. They're excellent. All right, so our first, our first little go-round here today, I talked a lot about the psychology of criminal activity, criminal behavior. Uh, it be in my book, The Investigation from Blue 360 Media. Uh, but I, what, what, really, what led me into this, what I really wanted to start with, was about the police and, and how we perceive them in our society. And recently, our president said something that uh, I think feeds into the wrong narrative, the untruth narrative about the police. Basically, what President Biden said was, when I was a kid, the cops were short, taught to shoot to kill. We should be teaching them now to shoot to stop, not to kill. Well, let me correct the president of the United States and anyone else who thinks that police are taught to shoot to kill. They are not taught to shoot to kill in 99% of the incidents. What they are, let me strike that. In 100% of the incidents, they're not taught to shoot to kill. The police are trained in the use of deadly force, whether that be a firearm, whether that be a, a car, or a flashlight. You know, a flashlight can kill you as quick as a car can, or a bullet. What the police are trained in is the use of deadly force to be employed when it's necessary to protect yourself or an innocent third person from death or serious bodily injury. So if you've got somebody chasing somebody with a knife, right, and you see this, and this person screaming for help, and if that per the other person catches up with them and sticks the knife in their back, they could kill them or seriously injure them. At that point, the individual being chased with the knife or another person witnessing this, especially our police officers, are authorized by law to utilize force, even deadly force, to stop the person who's committing the violence so they don't hurt anyone. So when we teach our police to shoot, we teach them to shoot for center mass of the body. Why? Because anybody who shot a handgun understands that handguns are not like what we see on TV. You know, how many movies have you seen where there's a guy running, jumping roofs, and the cops are chasing him, and a cop will shoot a guy, boom, shoot him right in the leg, and the guy falls down, and they arrest him? It is so difficult to hit somebody with a handgun once they are more than, I don't know, five, ten yards away from you. It is not easy. There are people that are very good at it. You know, I'm a pretty good shot. But in reality, in, an, in, a, in a real event, when you're breathing heavy, adrenaline is going, your hand is shaking just a tiny little bit, you can miss somebody. 
at five yards or 10 yards. And I know it's happened. I know cops that are great shooters uh, that when they were involved in a real event actually missed the person they were shooting at. Uh, and they were kind of close, closer than you would imagine. So the reality is we teach our officers to shoot for center mass because that's the easiest thing to hit. Because you can't hit them in the arm. You can't hit them in the leg. You can't shoot the gun out of their hand. Like I hear so many of these, these people say, why don't you shoot the gun out of his hand? Uh, no, that's, that's not something that happens. Somebody with uh, who's standing still holding a gun and a, a scoped rifle and a trained rifleman, yeah, they might be able to shoot the gun and knock it out of somebody's hand or blow the gun up, blow their hand up. But the average individual, even well-trained officers, cannot shoot somebody that's running from them in the leg and only knock them down and not really hurt them with the bullet. That's it's all nonsense. So we do not train our police officers to kill people. We train them to shoot the person in center mass if it's justified so that the person stops doing whatever it is that they're doing, which is normally chasing someone with a gun, shooting at somebody, doing something horrible. An individual driving a car and they try and run you over right? Sometimes you cannot get out of the way of a car. So at that point, you may be justified at shooting at the driver to stop the driver. A police officer that's conducting a car stop and gets caught on the door and the person takes off. Well, the officer could get run over by that car if they, if they let go or were pushed out the window, whatever happened. They get run over that car, they can get killed. So therefore, shooting the driver to stop them from doing that is very often justified. So the idea that, you know, President Biden is saying, when I was a kid, they taught him to shoot to kill. Police have never been taught to shoot to kill. They've been taught to shoot to stop the violence. Now, the other side of that is reality. You hit somebody in the chest with a couple of 40 caliber rounds or a couple of nine millimeter rounds or 38s or whatever the cops are carrying. There's a very good chance that that person may die from the injury. But that is not the intent the intent is, let me, let me kill that guy, right? That's not the intent. The intent is to shoot them so that they incur an injury uh, and then they stop the deadly activity they are engaged in. Now, when I said 99%, I had to correct myself. The reason I said that is because we have, we have a new phenomenon in the last 30 years that we, we have seen sporadically throughout history but much more prevalently now, and that is the, the advent of the active shooter. Whether it's a, a, a teenage kid in a school attacking people and shooting their classmates, uh, or if it's someone breaking into the school and attacking the children in the school and the teachers, uh, or it's a workplace where somebody comes to the workplace and kills their coworkers or attacks their coworkers. The things that have changed... And this, this really demonstrates how police were trained. We were always trained to limit the use of force. Always use the least amount of force necessary to overcome the threat in front of you. So if somebody um, has to be arrested and the police officer says, put your hands behind your back, you're under arrest. Now, the only thing that citizen should do is comply with that arrest. Turn around, put their hands behind their back. Even if they disagree with what the officer's judgment is for arresting them. Uh, the place for the disagreement is not there on the street. It's not to argue with the cops, not to resist the officer. It is to go to court and explain yourself in court, right? Uh, so if the officer says, put your hands behind your own back, you're under arrest, that's what you should do. Anything short of that can be considered resisting that arrest. Now, 
if somebody resists and says, uh, no, I don't want to be arrested. Well, at that point, you're using verbal techniques. Listen, I know you don't want to get arrested, but I'm telling you, you're under arrest, so therefore you have to submit to me and, and turn around, put your hands behind your back. If they pull away, now the officer can go one level higher. The officer can grab the person. You can lay hands on them. So you see all these people when the cops go to arrest them, get your hands off of me. You can't touch me. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. Legally, the officers can touch you. If they're trying to arrest you and you do not comply, they can put hands on you and take you into custody, right? That might mean pushing you up to, to up against the car so that they can get leverage on you so you can't swing, run, whatever, so that they can get you handcuffed. That can be dropping you to the ground, so you can't fight and injure people. So you don't get to fight with the cops just because you don't agree with being arrested. You don't get to swing, punch the cop in the face, hit them with something you're holding. You don't get to run away. You don't get to kick them. You don't get to do any of that. And the officers are allowed to use more force than what's coming at them to affect the arrest, to, to do a legitimate action. Now, say that person then reaches into their pocket and they pull out uh, a knife. Now, an officer doesn't have to go, well, let me get my utility knife uh, because then it's a fair fight. No, the officers are not there to lose in these confrontations. You know, the officer is not trained. Well, you have to, ha if, they, if they have a knife, you have to use your utility knife on your belt. You can't go anymore. No, the police can do a couple of things. You can take a baton, which is why a lot of cops carry the baton, and you're allowed to use that baton to, what, stop the violence to protect yourself or you can certainly use your gun if someone has a knife and they're threatening you with it so that's the other thing there's a thing in, in police work we call the 21 foot rule you probably heard this somewhere along the line and that means that what you understand is somebody with a knife uh, they can close the distance of about 21 feet fast enough that you cannot get your gun out of the holster now, some people can, some officers can, they practice it and they're very quick and they can get it out. But the average police officer or anybody, any human being, if I'm standing 21 feet away from you and I decide I'm going to make a move on you, I'm going to get to you before you'd be able to draw your weapon and, and protect yourself. So the 21 foot rule, why do you have to shoot him? He was only 10 feet away. Well, he was running at him with a knife and the officer managed to get his gun out and fire around at center mass for what purpose? To kill the person? No. To stop them from running at them with a knife, right? That's why. So when the president says cops are, you know, back in the day were trained to shoot to kill, they were never trained to shoot to kill. And the difference here, and I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to go into our next topic with this, we're going to transition over, is that when we came to the advent of this active shooting thing, and this is where I, I got sidetracked for a minute, so apologize for that. Um, when we had to train police officers, when we finally saw after Columbine that these were not incidents we were prepared for, that people weren't going in there to be negotiated with, you couldn't go in and change somebody's mind. They went in there to kill, and they were just going to kill as many innocent people as they could, uh, as fast as they could, uh, until they were either stopped by law enforcement or they took some other action either run away or in most of the time uh, they would kill themselves because they're on that kind of a path. So what we started teaching our officers was that in an active shooter event, uh, when you get to the location, you go to the sounds of the gunfire. You don't stop and help victims. You don't uh, try and get people out of the way. You don't do any of that. You run to the sound of the gunshots 
You try and identify the shooter, and one of three things can take place. One, the shooter would see you, the officer, and they would surrender, at which point you would place them under arrest, right? Take them into custody. Uh, number two, they might see you and they might run into an area where they lock themselves in. Uh, and there's no victims in there and they're all by themselves and now they're barricaded in. They're locked in a room or a closet or whatever. And at that point, you contain them. You contain them. You keep them there till you get more help there. You try and talk them out, whatever you're going to do, surrender. That's good. Or the third option. They see you and they do not put down the weapon and surrender. They see you and they do not run and lock themselves in a secure place. But instead, they continue to fire on innocent victims or they turn towards you and they're going to fire at you. At that point, the police are taught to use deadly force to stop the person, maybe as the first option. So I'm running up a hallway of a school and I hear gunshots and I see kids falling, getting shot. And there's a 17-year-old shooter as horrific as that is, and he sees me, and he does not put down that gun, but he still has the gun and he's still firing, my first reaction legally can be to shoot that person, to use deadly force to stop them from killing any more people. So again, we're not shooting them to kill them, we're shooting them to stop them. Unfortunately, that often means you know you get shot and you're going to die. That's, that's what happens when you get shot. But that is not the purpose, to kill the person. You know that's, that's not up to the individual officer to kill someone. That may be the result of the officer's actions, but it's certainly not the intent. And the only reason, that's the only reason I said 99.9 and 1%, because it's, it's just we started teaching cops that it was okay to go to deadly force right away if that was what was necessary. Prior to that, we told them use restraint in every situation. Use as, as little restraint, as much restraint as you possibly can. Uh, go up the the uh, the the wall of uh, up the ladder of use of force uh, slowly. You know, do what you have to do, but don't jump. You got somebody who pulls out a uh, who pulls out a um, a baseball bat and they're standing 20 feet away from you. Um, you don't shoot them down and kill them there unless they start coming at you because 21 feet, they can hit you in the head with a bat and kill you. See what I mean? So all these judgments have to be made. And when we see the president of the United States saying a thing like that, he is just simply feeding in to, uh, into the lies that police are out there to kill people. Uh, the police are out there to do their job. And one of their jobs, the job that you and I demand that they do is enforce our laws. We demand they enforce our laws that are made by representatives of you and me. And someone has to enforce them and they go and do it. And sometimes people don't like that when that happens. And they try and injure the officers, try and hurt the officers, try and kill the officers or other people. And the police are then um, empowered by you and me, by the way, to employ deadly force to stop that from happening. Now, it's a tragedy for everyone when an officer has to use deadly force. It's a tragedy for the, the person who got killed, who brought the violence on themselves, it's a tragedy for the officer who then has to live with the fact that they may have killed someone in the course of their career. They've taken a human life. And I know many, many officers, many, 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 many officers, and they're really there to do good and to help. They're not there to go to, oh, I hope I get to shoot somebody today, man. I hope I get to kill somebody. They, I've never, ever heard that in my life. And I've spoken to many officers that have been involved in officer-relating shootings and have killed people. And it's something that weighs on them for the rest of their life. They think about it. They may get over it. They may uh, put, it, put it in its perspective that it was part of their duty. It's something that they had to do. Uh, 
but it's something that's still there because they're mostly good and decent men and women that don't go to work with the idea they're going to kill somebody. So, Mr. Biden, you're wrong. You're hurting your country when you say a thing like that. Not only is it stupid and foolish, but it feeds into that narrative, that anti-police narrative, and we see what that does across this country. People are getting hurt, killed, raped, and murdered every single day because criminals don't become good people when you back the cops off. They become more emboldened, and they attack us even more. And therefore, we have to go after the criminal element. We have to make sure they understand there's limitations to their behavior. They're not allowed to hurt us. And if they do, they'll be taken into custody and they'll be facing justice. That justice can be jail time. That justice can be financial problems. That justice can be the death penalty, depending on what they've done. So that's, uh, that's what I just wanted to cover Mr. Biden's uh, activity there. I thought that was uh, really not right. So let's see, what else can we talk about here? We know we have the documents out there in the world, uh, presidential documents, vice presidential documents. We're seeing that Mike Pence now is getting caught up in this, that he had some documents. So let's ask ourselves, why would you have documents? Why would you have documents from your time in office? Well, number one, they're historical, right? So you might see, hey, look at my name on that paper, vice president of the United States, or president of the United States. You know, there's only been, what, 45 of them, 46 of them? Uh, what is Biden, 46, 47? I don't, I don't, I don't remember. But the, the reality is there's only 47 of those people that ever held that office in the history of the United States of America. That is world history. That's going to go down uh, recorded history for as long as there are people. They will understand um, you were a president or a vice president of the United States. So maybe you want to write a memoir. Maybe you want to hang on to a document because it was really a cool thing you did and it was right now the problem we have here is that the archives people are saying hey these are you can't have them we have laws that say you can't have them that's okay that's fair enough you cannot have these documents so maybe what what do we need to do maybe we need to have the archives people come in and they pack up the documents that are in the White House and the vice president's home and all these other people. Maybe they control the documents completely. So this way they don't go out in boxes with the president's uh, 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 pants and shirts and uh, other other personal belongings. And, oh, there's two boxes of that going to Biden's garage. What's in there? I don't know. Maybe it's his underwear. I don't know. And it turns out they're classified documents. But the reality is now you got uh, Pence involved here. And I think I think I said this, but I'm going to gather. I'm going to gather. I'm going to take a gamble here and say, I'm going to bet every president and vice president has left the White House with some kind of classified document, uh, whether purposely or, or not purposely. Uh, but I think that's a reality. So all of this stuff with, uh, you know, they were going after Trump. Let's do a search warrant on Trump's house. Let's let Biden search it and tell us what he found himself. Uh, again, it's the double standard of, of our system here, which is unjust in itself. But Pence now has, has some. Mike Pence. And I thought he was a good man. Um, I thought he was a good and decent guy, but uh, he had him. Do I think he stole him for something nefarious? No, I don't think he did. Was it inadvertent? Was it uh, careless? It might have been. And that's why he ended up with them. But the reality is, uh, you know, what do we do here? Because they probably all have them. So uh, are we going to go after just Trump? We let everyone else go. What about Hillary? Hillary had, had no right to anything. Uh, and she said, oh, I, I went through my emails, which, could have, which, did, have, which did have highly classified uh, emails on them. Even Jim Comey told us that. 
Uh, but he made the decision as the head of the FBI that eh, nobody would ever prosecute for somebody for like that. And, uh, you know, uh, she didn't mean to do anything by negative. So therefore, we're not going to charge her. Do you think if they found uh, things like that, uh, that Trump, if he had hidden his emails, he had smashed computers and all the things that Hillary did, you think they would uh, say, ah, he didn't intend to do anything wrong with it? No, they wouldn't. And that's, again, that's our, our double system. But now Pence has these documents. And I'm going to gather that probably Obama has them, Bush has them, I think probably every president. Jimmy Carter probably has some. He shouldn't have too. Uh, but I think that's just the nature of the beast. We need to figure out What's a better way to handle all these documents when they're generated, how they're maintained, and what happens when the people leave office? You know, where do those papers go? What's searched when they leave? You know, how do we check and see? All right. So I told you I wanted to transition into something for a couple of minutes uh, when I talked about the active shooters. Now, I was out in California last week. I was out in California and... There was, a, there was a lot of bad weather and this and that. We got a couple of nice days. Well, one of the days, uh, Kathleen and I decided, hey, what do you want to do, do today? We got some extra time. Uh, we finished a little early. And Kathleen has a, uh, a, a young cousin who lives out there. Uh, he works for a big company, and he had some time off. And he says, hey, why don't you come here? Let's get lunch together with uh, my, my fiance and, and you, and we'll come out and meet. Well, that sounds great, right? Doesn't that sound like fun? Where do you want to meet? He goes, hey, uh, why don't we meet at Half Moon Bay? Half Moon Bay, where we just had an active shooter who went in and killed, I think, uh, seven, seven of his co-workers. Uh, an Asian man, a man of Asian descent. I think he was 67 years old. He went to, uh, he, I guess he worked in a mushroom, uh, agricultural mushroom uh, plant. He was an agricultural worker, from what we're told. Uh, and he went there and he killed seven people. Right, killed him. Um, we don't know yet why. We don't know what the motive is. But he killed seven people. So this is a workplace violence active shooter incident where this guy went and killed seven people. And just 72 hours before that, in Monterey Beach, California, which is, I guess, down by Los Angeles area, another man, again, how strange, a 72-year-old Asian man um, went and attacked... Um, up tacked the place and killed 10 people. Actually, 11. The 11th person died. So he killed 11 people. So within, within a couple of days, these two men committed these active shooter incidents all over. And I, I brought that up because I was telling you what the cops are trained to do. When I do assessments for businesses, schools, religious facilities, I look for lots and lots of things. I look for safety things, you know, the, the concrete busted or the lights work, or the electrical go. I look for that stuff. But there's always a, a thing in the background is, you know, what if someone came to attack this place? If they came to do something bad, if they were an active shooter, they came and they want to attack people. What if they were an incel and they came to attack a place because there was a lot of women there that they, they didn't like or whatever? So I find that um, I happen to be there and it's, it's not even, you know, the time is like it's so close to the time that I was there that I'm reflecting back and saying, the guy lived there. He lived in the town of Half Moon Bay. Saying, did I see him? Did I pass him in the street? Did we go past each other? And just by fate, he chose not to attack people in the little downtown. And it's a beautiful little downtown. Um, the cliffs and the ocean, the Pacific are really, really close by. It's absolutely beautiful, gorgeous. It's almost unbelievable to see how beautiful the place is. And the little town, 
was wonderful. I mean, you talk about a tiny little American town, uh, little shops and, and places to get wine and have lunch and walk around. Absolutely fantastically beautiful uh, area and community. And here this evil came upon them, right? This evil came upon them. And it's just, I, I was there just days ago. I happened to be there when this happened. So it's a little bit, uh, for me, a person who deals with this kind of thing, who tries to help people protect themselves from this and plan, I just have to say everyone has to be prepared at all times. You don't want to think about it. It's scary, but the reality is you have to be prepared. You know, uh, I don't know exactly the facts of where he killed everybody there in uh, in Half Moon Bay at the at the mushroom plant, but uh, could they have? Could were they trained? Have they ever had any active shooter response training? Do they have security at the place, or was it just an open building where people processed food and this guy walked in and killed everybody? I don't know, but the fact is this was a close one uh, that I happened to be uh, right there. So anyway, I wanted to mention that to you. Now, we've had um, another, another, a third incident happen very recently in Yakima, Washington, right? A 21-year-old kid, normally I don't mention their names, but he's still wanted. He's still out there. He walked into a convenience store and he, and he killed two people. He just walked up to him and shot them, uh, ran out the door and shot a third person and killed that person. His name is Jared Haddock. 21 years old, and they're looking for him now, actively searching for him, because he is a he's a wanted for three unprovoked illegal homicides. He killed three, he murdered three people in cold blood. You know, this can happen anywhere at any time, and, I, and we all need to think about it. So I want to want to say uh, I appreciate everybody being out there. We're trying to up our game here. I'm trying to get to you more and more and more, because I really do enjoy being here. And I know my father-in-law, Ted, who listens every day to the station, all the, all the different shows, but especially to Chasing Justice. Uh, I want to tell everybody I do appreciate you being here and sitting with me every day. The great Malcolm Out Loud gave me some news the other day and said that the, actually the listenership of the show has really gone through the roof, and I'm, I'm very, very proud of that, and I'm happy, and I'm grateful to all of you for letting me have this voice here on America Out Loud. So remember, until we meet again, be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. This is Lieutenant Joe for Chasing Justice here on the America Out Loud Radio Network.